Welcome back to the Joshua Shaw audio experience. Firstly, thank you for giving me a bit of your attention. I'm honored you trusted me with it, and I promise to return the favor by giving you a ton of edutainment value back. I want to welcome you back to another episode of what I've branded Pivotal, since these interview-style segments tackle impactful CPG industry topics and lessons from the business leaders that live it every day. My guest on this episode is one of my favorite new connections on LinkedIn, but when Will Nitza isn't pumping out consistent thought-provoking content that spans all over the CPG entrepreneurship spectrum, he is running the popular nutritional snacking brand IQ Bar. Coming from zero previous CPG experience, Will shares some of the kind of looks easy, but it isn't industry lessons that any aspiring entrepreneur should take to heart. We also talk about how being a successful early mover in a new subcategory can bring copycats and how that's actually a net positive. Additionally, we cover some of our thoughts around what the future of the brain nutrition category could look like. These are just some of the riveting topics we covered in this episode, but without further delay, here is my recent conversation with the founder and CEO of IQ Bar, Will Nitza. But first off, welcome to the show, Will. I I guess I have to kind of start off by saying I don't, I don't get too many days that I get to talk to a Harvard gentleman like yourself um, in the functional CPG space. So it does kind of make sense, though, if you rewind it, I guess, in, in where you are now or where your niche is for IQ bar and where you're kind of positioned at. But just want to thank you for giving me and my community some of your time. I know that undoubtedly we're going to have a ton of great insights with this episode that we're going to kind of share. So just first off, just want to thank you, Will, for uh, joining me. Thanks for having me. So quick question before we kind of get into some of the deeper kind of stuff that I'm super interested to dig into is that kind of a question around is a, a name change to the company going to happen soon? Because uh, I think until recently, you were just the IQ bar. That was your main skew. But I think you just launched a IQ mix hydration sticks. So does the IQ bar name make sense? Or are you going to make a change to like some ambiguous term like the IQ company? The latter, the latter. Um, and yeah, it's it's funny. I, I When I was first starting IQ Bar, I called a bunch of people in the industry. I didn't know anyone in, in the industry. I just found them on the internet and uh, cold emailed or cold called them. But some of the folks I talked to were, were the health warrior folks, for instance, and they started with Chia Bar. Mm. And, you know, Chia Bar locked into that form factor. And then they changed to health warrior. And that was one of the pieces of, of advice was don't put a form factor in your in your title. Uh, but then I was super enamored as well with RX bar at the time. It was like blowing up. This was like 2016, 2017. And it's interesting. It's a weakness and a strength, I think. For, for me, I think the title of a product, you don't gain much from being nebulous or obscure. And you gain quite a bit from being really explicit. And so what's the quickest way, what are the fewest number of letters required to uh, demonstrate what we sell and what the value prop is? And so IQ Bar is just, is that for me. I also took cues, so RX Bar is one of them that, that did it and did it well. And uh, people can quibble over whether that was a good idea or a bad idea. The bottom line is they succeeded. And... Life Aid is another one, and they have Fit Aid and Focus Aid and yada yada. So it's definitely been done for better or worse. That was the path I took. But yeah, we will we will have a umbrella brand, and then under that under that will be IQ Bar, IQ Mix, IQ fill in the blank, and yeah, something like the IQ Company will will definitely emerge. Just make sure you send me some product if you ever do use that name i feel like that's my uh, royalty in that yeah coming up yeah. with the most obvious name possible well it's so much of it is just like googling what you know checking trademarks yeah. who has what domain 
there's so many directions you can go. You can go IQ Naturals, IQ Provisions, IQ, you know, there, there's like 15 different ones and they're all kind of interchangeable. Um, and it just comes down to like, what can I trademark like globally? What's short? What can I get a domain for? What can I get socials for? Now you mentioned before you started IQ Bar that you had zero CPG industry experience. And I think this kind of rolls into something I wanted to talk about initially. And this is that, honestly, I, I probably a lot of people that look at the CPG industry, they think, well, that looks pretty simple. Um, it, it's not. It's probably the complete opposite of that. But because we consume these products daily, we go to any kind of store and we see these products on the shelf, we think to ourselves, you know, the CPG industry must be pretty, pretty easy. Um, I don't know if this is like probably some, a little bit of that, like Dunning-Kruger effect type of a uh, thing that's going on with like a cognitive bias. But I don't know if like, did you initially have that thought before you started the, the company or did you instantly know like, okay, this is a lot, this is, this is going to be a tough business. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I'm trying to like get back in my original headspace. So I, I got into food and bev because I read Mission in a Bottle, and this it's so tough what happened with with Honesty just now. But Seth Goldman was like a hero of mine, and he actually went to Harvard and studied government. I went I went to Harvard and studied government, so I was like, this guy is me. And he had no back. You know, he just went into consulting, and he was like walking in the park and was drinking a really overly sweetened iced tea and that was his aha moment so there, there were so many parallels uh with him and i and and i just became obsessed with that story but in mission in a bottle he was very explicit about how challenging it was and he went through they, they had the i think it was called three rivers bottling plant or company or something like that they bought a bottling company and they did all these things that in retrospect he said you know damn i shouldn't have done that that cost me i think the bottling company was a million dollar mistake hmm. and I, he just really well detailed all of the challenges and so I, I was under no illusion that it was easy from the start just given I read that book and I was like okay like this guy's me or this guy's who I want to be you know I know it's going to be a bumpy road but how, but how do I how do I embark on that road um, but it is doable so that's the and when I say doable, I mean, I think of things in terms of can I become obsessed with this to where I'll want to perfect it. And so something like computer programming, which I, I took a couple courses in in college, I just couldn't get obsessed with it. And I'm a big believer in being a practitioner and actually being a developer of the products you sell. I think there's a lot of folks who are branding people or whatever, and they want to get into CPG because that's a way to convert branding know-how into, you know, a company basically. And I'm not really into that. I, I would, I'm really only into things where I can actually be the practitioner, the developer, understand the science and manifest the science in, in great products. So I never thought it was going to be easy, but I, I knew I could do it because I knew I could get obsessed with it. I think that's a good way to explain it because I think the CPG industry right now is having this moment where I think a lot of people are looking at it as this like sexy industry and, and there and it is. I mean, I think there's a lot of aspects of that it is, but I also think that people underestimate how much of a daily grind it is and how you have to be able to be okay with that, embrace it and really like live off of that and like it's small incremental consistent changes over time that make the biggest effect in cpg it's really i mean it takes a little i guess a little bit of the form of like a cpg product as a whole it's like you're really selling very small priced units um and you need to make cumulative you know sales over time for that really to to take a big material change and, and actually make an impact in the market it's not something where you know you can miss or, or skip steps like you really have to be a student of of everything um, to make sure that you're going to be successful i mean i think that you know it's incredibly hard probably uh, i think more way more hard for people to understand how to make a consistently great like food beverage or supplement product um like from a manufacturing aspect um also extremely hard to you know master the fact that 
somebody standing three feet away from a shelf that has three seconds of attention span? Like, how do you draw them in like to do that? And then, you know, even think about just getting the product on shelf at all. Like how hard that is. I, I, I find it super interesting sometimes when entrepreneurs are like front facing in the CPG space and, you know, they'll do Q and A's on say Instagram or you know, one of these things. And a lot of questions around like, Hey, when are you going to be on shelf at Costco? And, Oh, I heard you talk about that yesterday. When are you going to be on shelf? It's like, I don't think they have any understanding of like how long all of that process takes. It's like, it just seems like it's so instantaneous sometimes. And you know, it's a, it's a crazy, crazy space, but it's one that, like you said, if you're super obsessed, you could be extremely successful. Well, the, the other thing too, is it's like people think that it, there's so many variables that can kill you. It's like when you make a product, people think, oh, just make a great product. And that's actually not it at all. It's, it's not that hard to make a great product. It gets infinitely harder to make a great product at a great margin that is conducive to great distribution. And then, of course, you have to go get that distribution. And most people don't even get past that first hurdle of make a great product with a great margin. Like they're dead in the water on the starting block. And, you know, they'll tell themselves lies about, well, I have a path to XYZ gross margin. And they just don't. Or maybe there's a path to it, but they, they're not going to be the one to do it or, or whatever the issue is. So like when I first started messing around in my kitchen, my apartment kitchen, you know, there's a whole host of things I wanted to incorporate and it just wasn't going to work because the supply chain wasn't there. The unit economics weren't there. And so you make hundreds of micro compromises because you can have an incredible product but if it's five bucks on shelf and all your competitions at 199, no one's ever going to pick that thing up. So it's like, hmm, how do I keep it the the excellence of that this product and and shave 10 cents off here and 10 cents off there? And and so the quality product is like one one hundredth of the battle. Um, so some people never get even get there. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 so many problems. I, I did a. a a LinkedIn post on this where it's like people people also think, oh, I'm going to get into the food industry. How cool. I'm going to be, you know, selling cookies to people. And it's like, no, you're, you're not. You're going to be in a spreadsheet figuring out how to claw back XYZ deduction from UNFI or how to shave cogs off or, you know, 99% of your time is solving other problems that have absolutely nothing to do with that cookie. I mean, they have everything to do with it, but they're not in that fun zone of, I run a cookie company, you know? Um, And and the other thing is you have to know every area of your business. Like you have to become an amateur accountant. You have to become an amateur financial analyst. You have to become an amateur food scientist. You have to become an amateur branding person. You have to become an amateur tech fluent person via Amazon, your website, et cetera. So it's like you have to wear 12 hats and be pretty damn good at all of them. I definitely agree with that. I mean, I even think about it in my own consulting is that I always tell people I do A to Z type of consulting because that's what ultimately when the CPG space is needed the most when you have, I mean, and this is no knock on, I guess, like specialists and things like that, but the CPG industry, for me, I feel like it's so interconnected, the business, that you need to understand how, when you pull one lever, what that does to the rest of the strategic alignment downstream or upstream, and that if you don't have understanding of that, you could just keep pulling levers as hard as you can. You end up breaking the system because there's so many small little intricate things that need to be aware of. And, you know, it's hard to be an amateur or, you know, like a, a, you know, kind of pseudo expert in, in everything. But as a founder, I mean, that is your requirement. Your requirement is to be, know at least enough to be dangerous in everything. Because when you do talk to somebody, you, you want to at least know if they are you know, taking advantage of you, are they giving you the right information? Is there another path to this, uh, solving this challenge? You know, a number of those kind of things. And we talked to like, in and out of like product here and 
I was trying to rack my brain on if you guys were, and you, you can correct me if you guys were the first to put um, like nootropic or adaptogenic type things in a bar form. Um, and, and, you know, even if you weren't the first, maybe, you know, you're more of a category creator, I guess, in that, in that space. But since you did that uh, four and a half or five years ago at this point, there's been a lot of people that have come in to the space as well. Um, and some that you know, have blatantly copied um, you guys want to get your thoughts on like how you approach that situation. Yeah. I, th I don't think we were the first one to put lion's mane or any other adaptogen in a bar, but we were like the second or third. And then the first and the second, I think just petered out. Like I actually think, I think purely Elizabeth maybe did it <laughs> a, a long time ago. And then they quickly discontinued that. And, you know, on, on its face, like no one wants to eat a mushroom bar. So it, it's not, it can't ever take center stage. It has to take backstage. And that, which I think is a, is a, another sort of insight about how you frame up your products, right? Especially in the bar category, what do people care about? They all care about roughly the same thing. They care about protein and sugar. And then if they nerd out a little bit, they care about carbs slash net carbs or the, and, or they care about protein source, you know, whey versus P versus whatever. And then they might care about fiber as well. But there's like a handful of things that everyone cares about. And everyone is diet first when they shop for a bar. They're not, no one goes into a, a store and they're like, I want mushrooms in a bar. You know, it just doesn't happen. And they, they also don't say, I want a brain food bar. That, that also doesn't happen. So you have to meet people where they are and you have to uh, give them what they expect and what they want. And then the brain angle is a rounding angle. It's, it's a, not a door opener, it's a door closer. So, you know, that, that's just sort of a branding thing. But on the copying piece, yeah, I mean, it, it, it has happened a couple times over now. What I would say is the brands that do that are not authentically, that's not built into their DNA. So they're just sort of, they're always going to be two to three steps behind. And it also doesn't really make sense for their brand. So there's a couple couple iterations. There's a there's a there are certain companies where they shifted or pivoted into that direction. And then there's companies that that founded themselves on that and tried to build it into their DNA. Um, I've actually thought I had talked to a few of these people before they did it, which is uh, you know, is what it is. But I, I think they're grossly mistaken with how they're approaching things. I think they're grossly mistaken um, and they don't understand the market because they haven't been in the market for a while. And like I said earlier, we've micro pivoted a hundred times and we've, you know, look, could they do it too? Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't really care. But if you just look at the way that they brand, this will sound funny to say coming from me, but that they're going too all in on the brain. Like I said, no one shows up to a store and wants brain food. I don't think it's ever happened in the history of mankind. So if if that is like your thing and only your thing and you're winning on that thing, you know, you have a branding problem. No, I was going to say, I mean, I think that when you're talking about like a, you know, a niche category, you know, like be it brain food, um, you know, a, a subcategory of just, or just, I guess, a focus of, of food in, in general being connected to maybe that's, you know, gut brain connection or, or something of that nature. I mean, if you're only waiting for customers that are interested in that value proposition, you, you got to really have a lot of patience um, because it's going to take a while for that category to get built out properly, especially when you're talking about, you know, some of these formats like food or beverage that need the help of large retailers to carve out, you know, small sections of their categories, merchandising sets to to provide those things. And I always think, you know, it's interesting sometimes when big CPG gets involved with some of these like nascent, most of the time it is functional or better for you kind of niches or parts of the market. And they get in, they are unauthentic to your point. They are just looking at it from a dollar sign or from, you know, growth numbers on a IRI or a Nielsen sheet and saying, we need to be a player in here. 
and a lot of people get scared at that. If you are an emerging brand or a smaller brand, because you go, well, I don't have the dollars for marketing. I don't have the team. I don't have all this stuff to really be matched up against them. But far and away, it's actually a net positive that these big CPG players come in because they actually raise the tide and it raises all boats. Now people are interested or looking at that category or hearing the buzzwords and going, oh, I need to be you know, conscious of this. I need to look for something like this. Oh, there's a much better product on shelf for me. Boom, I'm going to buy that one. Um, but for whatever reason, you see it's a shock value or something. You you played in a space where there hasn't been any big CPG for the whole time, and then all of a sudden somebody comes in and and starts to kind of butt up against you in a, in a you know in a space. To your point, yeah, I should have mentioned this earlier, uh, which is by the way, the competition is a, is a good thing. It, it raises awareness, and others will spend ad dollars to build out a market that 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 you're in. So 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 yeah, it, I I agree. I think it's a net positive and the market's just so big. It, it's 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 endless. Um I don't know if you've ever read Blue Ocean Strategy, but it's like all the 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 total addressable market is never actually the total addressable market. It's always has a propensity to be much much bigger. Um and so you also just have to have confidence you can beat people. Like you you have to have confidence you can out execute people you have to be a little bit of a narcissist and megalomaniac to be honest if you know i, th- I think you do if, if you're an entrepreneur period you know it's irrational to start a company period and so you have to believe you're better than them and you're going to beat them and if you if you if you buy into that the competition doesn't it doesn't really bother you and, and perversely in in really tough times like we're in now with, with an impending recession in a perverse way you get like excited about it because you think you know the the free money is running out um people now the tide's gonna rush out and and the naked people are gonna be exposed and 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 you just have to be not one of them uh and and so yeah it's a good it's a good point i think uh what Warren Buffett said that was that who said the uh, you know catch a lot of naked people when the tide goes out or whatever. I, yeah, I, I think, I think so. it's a great it's a great quote. Something I've used often, and I totally agree with you. I think that any purebred entrepreneur really is a competitor to the bone. Like it's you know it's it's visceral. It's in you. It's like it's something that like ultimately, if you're just a entrepreneur or somebody that's fake, I mean you're gonna get crushed when competition kind of comes in because you don't necessarily have that reaction that you're like, I better step up my game. I better crush these people. And that's not to say you, you know, you look at this and you're like, well, I got to do anything possible, you know, and be a bad player in the, in the market or whatever. It's, it's about upping your game, making sure that you're up everything internally in your own business. And then it's a matter of, you know, Hey, we're going to go battle, uh, you know, and figure out who's, who's best here, who has the best, you know, value proposition, who has the best product, who has the best, whatever. And, and that's ultimately where it comes. And, you know, to your point around, you know, a lot of this free money or, or people playing with, uh, you know, kind of a fixed hand in the market. It's like, we're going back to fundamentals. We're going back to, do you actually have a strong business, a strong product? Um, do you understand how to operate? Uh, you know, it goes back to that. I mean, we always go through cycles. It seems like, you know, if anybody's listening to this, it's like, if you've been in the industry or any business sector for any long period of time, I mean, we went through Goldilocks period that happens. And then you go through this tough time where it kind of cleans out a lot of that fake. And then it goes back to it a little bit and it goes, you know, it's kind of these cycles that kind of go through. I did want to kind of transition and talk about you know, we said a little bit about competitors and also, you know, why they're good, but also I think sometimes entrepreneurs get caught up and I guess I can even expand this past entrepreneurs because really like in personal life, if you think about this, like we are constantly, because maybe social media or whatever, we're constantly comparing like our daily lives to someone else's highlight reel. And that's, like disastrous. It's just not good. And in the same sense in business, entrepreneurs do that too. I mean, I consult with a lot of them. I tell you, you know, a lot of times, first couple minutes of the calls are always like, hey, did you see this company raise this, uh, you know, equity? Or, oh, do you see them? They got on this shelf. Or, oh, do you see that new product they launched or whatever? And and, and it's tough to put the blinders on. It's, it's tough to really to, to do that. And, and really comparing yourself to another 
business, you know, I, I understand understanding the competitive landscape, but you also need to realize that like their customer, your customer, odds are they're probably not the same customer. You're building a, you know, differentiated brand. You have different customers. You have different ones that are bought into you. It's like, there's not a lot of that carryover. So, so a lot of that's noise. Um, but I'm interested in kind of hearing your thoughts on, you know, this in general, because I think it's a tough thing to block out. Yeah, I, it's impossible. It's impossible to block out. I think we what we do is complicated, but in some ways it's also simple. And your motivations are also pretty simple. And people's motivation motivations differ, but let's just say your motivation is, I want to start this thing because I don't want a boss. I want to be my own boss. I want to build a sustainable business that maybe even gets to a household name status. And then I want to sell the business and I want to make a lot of money and whatever. Maybe that means five million bucks. Maybe it means a hundred million bucks, but whatever that, that there, there's always, whether or not people tell you, there's always a financial component too. And so when things happen in the news, XYZ person raised a hundred million dollars or you know, some you you fall into the comparative trap in some lens. What what I always do is just remind myself that there's just no free lunch. Like any good thing meant a bad thing happened. I, I mean, sometimes genuinely it, there's just an additive thing and someone crushed it in some way and, and that's great. But more often than not, you know, when someone raises a bunch of money, they just sign themselves up for that valuation and they just made their exit opportunities they just shrank their exit opportunities by like 50 percent and they just sold a, a big piece of their baby and and so it's really loud and it's really cool looking and it's and it's all those things that that hit on our hedonic you know parts of our brain and and the dopamine get get the dopamine flowing and then once all that settles down it's like oh shit like that's great that that happened and but now my job is five times harder so to me it's 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 always about just reminding yourself of that there is no free lunch and i'm obsessed with optionality like if i were to optimize for one thing it would be optionality and many, many moves you make that look cool actually reduce your optionality. So what allows you to keep optionality is, you know, raising just enough cash. I, do, I, don't, I don't believe the bootstrapping model is possible in CPG. And even if it was, I don't believe it's advisable. But there is a model where raising just enough to get to the next, next step change of revenue, subsequently raising just enough to get to that, the, the next step change and moving along allows you to you know really control dilution never sign yourself up for too big of a value always you always beat your prior value so, so you're you're balancing uh, dilution on the downside and then you're, you're you're building value over time and you're building like an army behind you of, of happy investors happy team members and again, you're keeping your optionality. I think there's so many brands that are optimizing for like a $500 million exit that should have optimized for a $100 million exit or at least kept the option open. I mean, how many 500 to a billion dollar exits are we going to see in 2022? Like probably zero, like zero probably. You know, how many in 2023? I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't look great. You know that we're in this economic situation for for a while, and you have Coca-Cola divesting a massive brand. In honesty, you know they already had that; they already owned that, and they said no thanks. So it's like how I think these mega exits are going to be few and far between. And so in that event, I just think it's so key to keep your your optionality for a just running the business run it like a business because it's sustainable or b look look for um smaller exits where everyone wins i'm a big proponent of optionality in all aspects of business um i think that you know it's great to to i guess optimize for a certain event but 
you need to make sure that you're covering yourself for a lot of the downside risk um, because some of those events maybe won't happen because of some macro you know economic shifts or, or things that are happening right now because a lot of people were optimizing maybe for some aspect be, be that exit or whatever that's not going to come now now all of a sudden you've put all of your soldiers in a certain direction and you need to shift that war strategy and, and it's going to be tough to tough to do that because you didn't really cover yourself for any of the attacks on the other side or anything like that so it, you know it's well, and, what, and what's even the he, here's what i find really interesting let's say you position yourself like that well, like what do people care about they care about sales and growth and when you have to tighten the belt i just don't see any other outcome other than your growth going down so it, it's it's seemingly like a death spiral like how do you how do you avoid it i'm actually genuinely curious like if there are case studies of when shit hit the fan like it has now, how ha, has anyone figured out how to really effectively avoid that that you know death spiral in, in a high burn context? Not exactly sure, maybe you know, business cases specifically, but I do think, yeah, I mean, it's a matter of, to your point, having probably the right investors on your side that have a a longer view or at least a you know, some aspect of 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 above and beyond needing to to meet a certain standard for uh, their return or for their LP, LPs or whatever. But, you know, because I think that it's a real, you know, realism that needs to be put into place during these these periods that we're going to face right now that, yeah, it's probably better to retrench, look at profitability, and then ultimately that's going to affect your sales growth because you're going to have to decide or deprioritize certain aspects that are not as good from a bottom line perspective. But, you know, there's so many different ways that, you know, you have to skin a, skin a cat in that situation. But it, it, at the end of the day, you can't, I think, continue to optimize unless you're like that one in a million outlier that ends up, you know, kind of pushing through because they have something special they've been able to bottle. Um, but that's not something that you build you know, strategies off of that's these, um, you know, black swan type things in a good, in a good way, um, that you just really can't plan for. But we're talking, you know, also with competition, you know, and I, and I think there's good and bad. We keep kind of balancing this kind of thing here. And, and I think that the one aspect that people maybe forget about the CPG industry is that it is not a zero sum game. You know, you mentioned it in terms of like total addressable markets. They are always kind of flexing and they're kind of moving. And you know, consumers they are looking for different things and it's evolving and it's always kind of going. And because of that, there isn't going to be that one or two competitors in the space that's going to win. That being said, you don't necessarily have to worry too much. I think about trade secrets or whatever. And I know there's things that like maybe people keep close to their chest, but you. Like you said, I think you, at the beginning of this episode, you said, you know, when you were first starting out, you reached out to some people that were in the entrepreneur or in the CPG space. Um, and people have reached out to you now that have also been looking for advice or whatever. And to me, I think it'd be it's surprising for people maybe to hear like how willing and interested even competitors, direct competitors are to picking up the phone and just talking to you and jamming. And, and whatever. Um, and I think that has to do with maybe the aspect in the CPG space where there's like a lot of tribal knowledge. There's a lot of that, like, you don't know what you don't know and you need to go through it. And there's been somebody that's went through it. There's no special snowflake. So if you can find that person that's went through it, they're probably more than happy to like tell you a war story or two and, you know, let you know about all these different things. But I mean, have you been successful with like reaching out to competitors, you know, building a network of other like CPG founders to really get through this because I, I, I'm drawing this also back to the idea of like investors. And I think about, and maybe I'm, I'm thinking about something you've been posted recently, like you're talking about strategic investors and like, to me, the most strategic investors are other CPG founders because they have the most recency operator experience that they can kind of walk you through things. They probably have much better, you know, strategic advice than some strategic investor that has 
you know, maybe made an exit 15 years ago, but like has no idea what the day in and day out is of the CPG space right now. Yeah, I mean, the, it's a really collegial, Food & Bev is really collegial, which is, I think, one of the reasons a lot of people like it. I think there are subsets, like the supplement world gets kind of sketchy with people doing a lot of black hat stuff to each other, you know, on Amazon and things like that. But, you know, more broadly speaking, it's a collegial group of people and everyone wants everyone to win. And I also believe in the whole pay it forward thing. So I, when I started out, I call, I live in Boston. I called every Boston based food and bev entrepreneur that I could find. And I asked them a hundred questions and I, you know, they gave, you know, they gave me the answers to all of them. I get, or gave me their version of the answers and you know different people's answers contradicted with the others and I had to triangulate the truth and then really I just had to go out and do it and figure out what the truth meant for me because it, no 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 two contexts are the same but I have no problem so I have no problem giving advice because of the pay it forward thing and people gave me advice but also advice is like useless like it advice is a data point and you you can get you can talk to 10 people different people and get 10 different data points ultimately all it is is a data point you just use that to inform your course of action and it may be helpful it may not be helpful but every major thing i've learned in this industry is through direct experience not through getting some tip and then going and doing something and then it just worked out great like maybe it can help you course correct slightly or avoid some disasters but it's never gonna do the work for you and so i just have no problem giving giving advice for that reason advice is so hard to genuinely follow that it might as well be worthless you know and it, most advice is given at a especially strategic advice you know if i'm like hey think about this that way you know that 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 may be valid, but I need to go down that path and skin my knee a bunch of times and make a bunch of mistakes and and then I'll get to the truth. But that advice really didn't didn't do a whole lot for me. So uh, on the investor side, I have, I think, maybe a contrarian perspective on this. I, I've raised money from people who have zero experience in CPG. I've raised uh, we raise money from Circle Up, which is an awesome institution, and Karen Howland is a managing director there. She's on our board, so a ton of CPG knowledge and experience. And then I've, yeah, I mean, on the angel side, I've ra raised money from people who have a ton of experience and have have none. And like, the bottom line is, no one's going to do anything f for you, and even if they will, you might as well pretend they won't, and, and treat any plus as as just that it's it's a plus but i think people come into fundraising events and with these huge expectations of this person is going to give me that strategic know-how or that operational know-how or that hiring know-how and you're screwed if that's your perspective like you you need to assume you'll get zero and you need to build that know-how yourself i think there's some very rare exceptions to that. You know, if the family that owns Albertsons invests, they well, they can put you in Albertsons. Okay, like that's, yeah, that's an objective, tangible thing that benefit you you got because that person put money. But that's like, I mean, that's really an edge case. So if you can't turn on sales, and by the way, advice is great. Like I'll take any advice. It's not that it's a bad thing. It's just, it's so de minimis relative to the importance of you actually going out and doing the thing that it's just not worth worrying about, in my opinion. I liked what you were talking about when you were mentioning just one data point. And especially when we're talking about strategy, you know, it gets a lot harder to, I guess, take that advice and put it into play unless that person, and this is probably if anybody's ever messaged me and asked me something that like strategic, they probably get super frustrated because I'll be the person that fires back 10 questions because I don't know anything within the inner workings of their business. If they're not a client or anything, like it's something where 
I don't know any of the constraints in the business. I don't know anything from the financial capitalization strategy. I don't know. I don't know the human capital side. I don't know anything of their, their business. So, they, but they're asking me to, a question and expecting me because I've been doing it for ten years to give them the right answer. But yet, I don't have any of the backstory and any of the context to actually make that thing. So when they do ask, I, I probably give them homework right off the bat because I'm like, if you want me to even give you any advice, I need to understand kind of what's going on here. But even that. It's it's only hopefully a little better than the coin flip of an advice, I guess. You know, it's it's like the gambler mentality. It's like I've seen a ton of patterns and sequences over 10 years that my advice is probably 55% good. And that's a you know, if you consistently put my advice in play, you'll probably win. Now you're gonna take some some losses as well. But it's like the professional gambler mentality is if you can you know, beat the beat the house and cover the you know cover the float. You're you're good or wherever. But you know, a lot of times I will shy away from those types of questions because I think people have a high expectation for somebody just being able to come in and and provide you know some wizardry uh, where it's not I think the reality. The, I think the best advice comes in the form of here is what you should be thinking about. Like that's it. Yeah. Here's what you should be thinking about and investigating, not this is the way you should do this thing because it's the right way to do it. It's a really distinct difference. Here's what you should be thinking about versus here's the answer. And I think the people who give the best advice are also the ones who know when advice can be detrimental and, and, and as a result, frame things as here's what you should be thinking about. I mean, there's yeah. so many like, quote unquote veterans in the industry. And it's like, I could not care less. I, I mean, I, I, I care, but I just, again, it's like your personal experience. I'll talk to anyone. I love getting feedback. I love hearing advice, but it's one one thousandth of the equation. And unless the person literally started a brain food company that's e-com first in roughly the 2017 to 2019 time frame with a certain capital structure with a certain uh, desired outcome in Boston, then I'm not taking anything as gospel. Um, and in fact, taking anything as gospel could literally end things for me. So it's like sometimes advice is like, it's like painful to, to see when, when people take it, thinking that it applies to their very specific context. I'll often say like, it's not really my job to implant the strategy or implant these things. It's, it's my job to refine your vision and make sure that it's complete and, and ask the critical questions to make you feel like you're confident in making those decisions. Because to your point, there's so many little things that unless you're living in the same exact shoes, it's impossible to give you know, the full advice and, and, and it be as impactful as you hope it to ever be. The, there now, are some objective things, by the way, like accounting, there is a right way to do accounting, yeah. Yeah. right? There's a right way to structure a, a fundraising doc. There is a right way to get a trademark. And so I, I don't mean to like uh, minimize all of the things that there just is an objective right way to do. In fact, they're absolutely critical. And it's just knowing what are those things where there just is a right way to do it and, and what aren't. Now, I want to shift this at the end because we talked about brain food, brain nutrition, and, you know, you were, you know, on the bleeding edge and you're super passionate about this space and super interested in in all this. So it would be silly for me not to ask a question and, and kind of more open-ended and say, like, you know, what's in your mind kind of like the future of brain nutrition and everything because and you can go out as far as you'd like i'm all into you know futurism and, and where this can kind of go you could be real you know real with it as well and and i'm thinking about even a recent conversation with um, kara landau she's the ceo and founder of a gut health snacking brand um, uplift foods and mm -hmm. we were talking about i think i mentioned earlier like the the brain the gut brain type or, or like the psychobiotic you know side of things and how that could play into like 
overall nutrition and nootropic supplements and even, you know, just basic kind of um, psychedelics and, and, and things like that. Like all those things to me, like probably have a space and, and some intersections together. Um, but I'm super curious, like where you kind of see, you know, this whole space evolving, because I still think it's super new, super like infancy and like wherever we, if we take 10 years and we kind of you know, look back, we're going to probably laugh at you know, where we were at. Yeah. I think like most things, if you do the basics well, you'll get 80% of the benefit. And, and so like what, why I got, I think maybe, I don't know, maybe some people think it's arbitrary that our products are ketogenic, for instance, and, and actually no, like if you just eat less carbs, of course, there are contexts where, car, you know, carbs can be really helpful, exercise, et cetera. But just, just sitting at your desk on a daily basis, if you eat less carbs, that is better for your brain, like period, end of sentence. And if you eat a lot of carbs, um, you know, especially simple carbs over decades of time, not only are you going to have all these bad body outcomes, but your brain is going to massively suffer. And of course, this is all intuitive. Like if you eat a pizza at lunch, everyone thinks worse at 2 p.m. in that context. So it's it's sort of it's obvious and just true. And so I think people will think about the dietary just just broad strokes diet diets impact on the brain. And that science will get more mature. Um, David Perlmutter's book, Grain Brain, was one of the early ones I read. And I, I don't know how well it's held up, but it totally blew my mind around all these people who thought, you know, I'm getting Alzheimer's because it's genetic. And, you know, my grandmother had Alzheimer's and therefore that's why I got it. And it's like, no, well, maybe some of that is true, but also your epigenetics, you're turning on and off of genes, you know, is heavily, heavily influenced by your diet over decades of, uh, of time. So I think there's, I think people will become much more aware around just, just broad strokes diet or put differently the macro nutritional perspective on um, what you eat and your gut health relative to, to brain function. And I also think the micronutritional level will, will garner more interest. It, it's very, very contextual. And, and sometimes the context is, is literally the form factor. So just think about Adderall or Vyvanse or any of these amphetamine salts or just basically stimulants, right? Wildly popular. Like we're, we don't have to move to the future to understand that people want their brain to work better. It, it's, it's now. <laughs> Go to a college campus, um, you know, during exam week. So like the future is now in that regard from a demand standpoint, people want this. It's more of a, of a form factor question. And so, you know, like the, the bulletproof coffee movement, Dave Asprey had to spend like 10 plus years getting people to care about putting, you know, MCT oils in their coffee. Now, is that the best way to go? I mean, people can quibble about that, but people ultimately, or at least a lot of people came around more broadly people have not really come around to the whole nootropic biohacking thing. Like it's big on Reddit and it's, you know, there's always going to be a crowd, the Soylent crowd. They're all, they'll always be there. Is that going to reach Walmart and Sam's club? And you know, is it going to truly mass marketize? No, I, I don't. I, I really don't think it will. I think it'll be a large niche and the niche will grow and it'll be a great niche, but it's not going to mass marketize. My sort of thesis around this is a good positioning is is our positioning, which is it's a door closer, not a door opener. So lead with what people want and have always wanted, you know, let's say a chocolate bar or, you know, um, things people like because they touch on the protein, you know, the, the protein goals and, and your sugar goals and whatever. And that that, that brain thing is a is a benefit. But again, how many people are going to walk into a grocery store and, and outside of context of I want fish oil or my doctor told me I need to take this nutrient and I'm on doctor's orders, you know, aside from those cases, how many people are walking in wanting brain food or, or you know, brain functional things? If you're betting on that happening, I think that's not a great bet. Yeah, I think there's two things that I was thinking about. I mean, there's the 
super quick sensory effect of what people's expectation are are of you know, trying to get some elevated brain function. So that would be, you know, maybe they've taken Vyvanse or Adderall or just, you know, slammed an energy drink or whatever. I mean, there's a certain feeling that you get. That is great. <laughs> and I think that that has a place. Uh, but to your point, when you're talking about something about cumulative, multi-decade, you know, generational type, you know, lifestyle changes, it's a matter of probably attaching to routines and, and attaching, you know, how do I you know, look at the natural consumption behaviors and give them something that's a little bit better that's going to be cumulative that they could just naturally apply to their lifestyles. And if you can do that, you make huge changes because I think if you're trying to do an uphill battle and teach somebody something new, you know, it's very tough. It's very expensive, I guess, uh, overall. I mean, people have done it. People obviously behaviors have changed a long time, but it takes it takes patience and it takes a lot of money to do those things. And if not, it's a matter of how do you you kind of hack somebody's already routine and try to get, you know, infiltrated into that and make something make somebody make a change that's easily um, interchangeable. Well, the, the challenge with the brain all, always is you don't see it. Yeah. <laughs> so people who put on weight in their midsection, not only do they see it, they loathe it, right? They're like, how do I get this thing off my body? I'll do anything, right? I'll do Jenny Craig. I'll, I'll you know, I'll go to crazy lengths. And this is not a demographic of people. This is roughly all people. The problem with the brain is you you don't see it and there's no nerve ending so you don't know when you're hurting your brain for lack of a better word so it's just inherently a tougher problem now now you should say well can't you tell that you're thinking worse or can't you tell in this other case you're thinking better and and that's all fair and well but um it just is a more inherently difficult problem to to drive motivation in that in that sphere well, Will, this was a fascinating conversation. I had a blast talking to you, and I know my audience is going to get a ton of valuable nuggets of information from this conversation. So thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, no, I had a blast. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have any comments or questions about anything I discussed during it, open the podcast episode notes and click on any of my social media account links to reach out to me directly. 